Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, April 22nd, 2013. Usually at the beginning of each show, I highlight a moment in history or heroic person. This week, I want to highlight fresh history and fresh heroes. Thank you to all the brave men and women of Boston and West Texas. Your courage will be remembered. I'd like to welcome Dr. Penny Noyce, founder of Tumble Home Learning, and they had a Kickstarter to fund Dr. Tan's Supergrams. They're out of Weston, Massachusetts, and welcome to the show. Wonderful to talk to you. Let's get down to business. Tell me about Dr. Tan's Supergrams. Well, one of the things we've been using with kids for a long time is Tangrams because they really enjoy making the puzzles using these seven pieces. But we thought it would be fun to add another level. So we're adding augmented reality. And what that means is that when kids put together a Tangram correctly in a special frame pad that we send them, and then they shine their iPad or iPhone on it, and later Android will be included too, they'll see a 3D image come up out of the Tangram image. So they'll be able to get kind of a reward for doing the Tangram correctly. Oh, okay. Technology. Technology. It's a lot of fun. What is the Galactic Academy of Science? The Galactic Academy of Science is a series of books and science activity kits for kids 8 to 13 years old. And in each book, a pair of middle school students runs across a mystery that requires science to solve it. In one case, there's a stolen computer chip, a brand new invention. In another case, there's a fossil that the kids think has something funny about it and might not be real. And in another case, they're worrying about whether a new vaccine is safe or not. And in each case, what the kids do is they end up traveling back in time to meet scientists from the past and learn from them as a way of getting the information they need to solve the mystery. So the Galactic Academy of Science is a secret society established in the future to protect the integrity of science through the ages. And people from the Galactic Academy of Science, who are kind of cool teenagers from the future, show up and give the kids a handheld time travel device, which looks a lot like an iPhone, and they go back on their mission through time to find out what they need to learn. And then the kits that come with the books allow readers to experiment with some of the notions and reproduce in some way some of the experiments that they read about in the book. I call your company a kid-tested, family-approved multimedia company. You have several product lines, uh, two of which you just mentioned. I really liked your video a great deal. It was very well done. But one question, what is the augmented reality tool? What's it all about? Augmented reality as opposed to virtual reality. Virtual reality, you enter a whole new world. But in augmented reality, you can see what was there before. So in our case, you can actually still see the Tangram puzzle as you aim your viewing thing at it, whether it's an iPad or an iPhone. But you sort of see rise up out of this what looks like a 3D image that can move and that you can interact with on your phone or your computer. 
So it's a way of seeing both the regular reality and the computer-enhanced reality at the same time. Kickstarter has had over 85,000 projects since 2009. We count you among the success stories. Now that you've reached your minimum funding goals, you get to spend the money. But what would you like to say to your backers? I'd like to say, you guys are fantastic. You really gave us not only the actual financial means to go ahead, but the inspiration. And I have to say that as soon as we knew we had met our goal, we just started working like mad. And I have to say, Kickstarter is a wonderful community. You get on there and you think, well, I'll just look around. I'm not going to give anything today. But there's so much creativity there and so much good spirit that it's really fun to back at whatever level you can. A lot of people that I know just feel happier when they've been poking around on Kickstarter and seeing the kind of creativity that's out there. Your company is exciting. Your video presentation is great. And DJ Grandpa always backs science because science is cool. Thank you very much, Dr. Penny Noyce. And good luck to you and your company, Tumble Home Learning and Dr. Tan's Super Grannies. Well, thank you so much, DJ Grandpa. There has never been a fight on DJ Grandpa's crib before. But this week, Alex Schwartzman, the publisher of Unidentified Funny Objects, a science fiction anthology, dukes it out with me over all things sci-fi. Check it out. I think he might have won. Alex, you know, I'm a sci-fi type of guy, you know, DJ Grandpa and all, but... You know, some people believe that there's nothing funny about sci-fi, so uh, what would you say to that? There's certainly a number of people who don't think uh, there's anything funny about sci-fi, and so a lot of the magazines and anthologies at the top end don't publish that many funny stories, but I believe that there's a ton of people out there who enjoy funny science fiction. I mean, people who like things like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or the Stainless Steel Rat series by Harry Harrison. There was a funny science fiction book that made it onto the New York Times bestseller last year, and that was Red Hurts by John Scaldi. Oh, okay. So I do think there's plenty of room for the lighthearted humor of science fiction and okay. plenty of demand for that, and that's why I'd like to see us you know, succeed as an annual anthology to support that. Could you tell me about this year's version, the highlights? There's going to be some slapstick. There's going to be some absurdist, you know, all kinds of funny. And this year's book is headlined by a couple of really fantastic authors. We, we have stories in from Mike Resnick, who is the most award-winning science fiction writer of all time. Uh, we have a story from Bob Silverberg, who is a grandmaster of science fiction and is one of the best-known names in the genre. We have a story from Ken Liu, who won the trifecta of the Hugo Nebula and the World Fantasy Awards last year, all for the same short story. So he's you know, one of the best up-and-comers in the genre. And there's a number of other great authors, very well-known, like Esther Friesner, Jody Lynn Nye, Tim Pratt, that have committed to uh, writing stories for this book. And I see that you are a widely published writer yourself. I started writing fiction actually only a few years ago, but I've been very fortunate to sell uh, close to 50 short stories now. You mean you're a late bloomer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. English is not my native language, as you can probably tell. No, no, uh, you, you, know, sound, you, sound, you sound fine to me, but 
You're a late bloomer. I, I like that. So is DJ Grandpa. I'm a late bloomer. So go go yeah. ahead. Keep telling me. Keep go. Keep going. You know, I actually didn't speak a word of English until I was about 14. Wow. So I've always been a, a fan of science fiction and fantasy. I've always been a, a you know a, a reader. I've always enjoyed it, and I only started trying to write it myself in 2010. Right. And much of what I write has a humorous bent to it. So when I drop those stories to magazines and anthologies, that's when I learned that if a story is funny, then the number of potential markets for it has been cut down like by half immediately. <laughs> and so out of that frustration, the idea for the unidentified funny objects was born. Okay, you publish a sci-fi humor type thing, and you you know you write all these articles. Are you a sci-fi type of guy? I mean, is this really your calling? I think so. I've been reading it since a very young age. I've always been a fan. I've consumed science fiction in all forms. I mean, I you know I watch the TV shows. I talk about it. I read it. So it's always been in my blood. And uh, it's just something that's really really fun to me. You know, you you, you discover your calling by just doing something and. When you feel like you know what you're doing is not really work, even if you have to work hard at it, that's when you know that uh, you know that you're doing the right thing. What's your favorite sci-fi program, sir? This is a test. <laughs> well, I actually have a strong favorite, and that's Babylon Five. Babylon Five, the guy with Babylon the long 5. hair in there. Absolutely, I think that the level of writing and the story elements in that series were way beyond a lot of the other shows of that time. That was a little low point in sci-fi history, but I okay, go ahead, keep going. The interesting thing is what? Well, I mean, there's a lot of great other shows. I mean, you know, there's you, you can make a case for Doctor Who, you can make a case for Star Trek, you can you know you, you know you can make certainly make a case for make Firefly. Make a case for Star Trek and Firefly? What are you well, trying to hang the jury or something? <laughs> I like those shows, but you did ask for what my absolute favorite was. You can only have one favorite, right? I mean, you know, you can like you can like a lot of different ones. I mean, I think Deep Space Nine in, in particular was wonderful, right. and it was interesting to see that uh, that it appeared around the same time as Babylon Five, actually. So I really enjoyed, you know, that era of science fiction. You know, even though you feel it was kind of a low point, I actually really liked that. I meant low point because it was like no show almost that rivaled Star Trek. I mean, just fan base wise, and until kind oh, of sure. like X Files, until kind of like. Like, until kind of like X-Files came on, and then X-Files, and then Stargate, and then, you know, that that's all I meant. I love Stargate, and I, I enjoy a lot of these shows. I like the sense of wonder and the sense of exploration that some of these shows have, and I right. think that Stargate in particular exemplifies that. You yeah. know, like it, it's a really, you know, light, fun, adventure show that's very optimistic, and I think that... Ultimately, even though we're seeing a lot of these uh, dystopian, sad stories uh, every once in a while, I think that optimism is what makes science fiction so important and just so useful to humanity as a genre. I'm in agreement with you, man. Maybe not on the Babylon 5, but I'm in agreement that's with fair, you. That's fair. That's fair. But, you know, we all have to have our favorite. And you hung me on my own phrase because I give people quizzes at times and I say, oh, you only got one choice. <laughs> You got me on that one. Good, very good strategy. You're a good chess player. I like that. I was a professional card player for a number of years, so so I have to be able to strategize. Are there any great sci-fi stories left to be told, or have we seen it or heard it all with all these zombies and vampires and all that stuff? You know, they say that every single story has been told, and we're just rehashing, you know, Shakespeare and the Bible and Gilgamesh 
over and over and over again. But you actually just touched on that because as much as we love to hate things like Twilight or, you know, you know, all these vampire and, you know, sparkling vampire genres, uh, we may not like it, but it's a popular phenomenon that's introduced a ton of people to speculative fiction. And it's something we really haven't seen before. And every few years or every decade, something like that will come along. So I think there's plenty of stories left to tell. I think there are plenty of things that will surprise us. And I don't know what they are, because if I did, I'd be writing it, you know, in the kind of the next George R. R. Martin right now. But those are the stories that, you know, when somebody figures out that simple, amazing thing that becomes a huge mega hit with the readers and with, you know, or with the viewers, if it happens to be a TV show. I mean, look at Firefly. And Mm -hmm. it was a great show, but that concept has been done before. That concept has been around. They just turned it around and they did it better. All right. I want to thank Alex Schwartzman of Unidentified Funny Objects number two. I believe in his mild-mannered internet cafe days, I believe he will find the next sci-fi gem to take us to the next step. So I'm going to watch him closely. And you should also go to kickstarter.com and check out his program and contribute. Thanks for coming on the show, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Hey guys, it's Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. You may know me from such internet shows as The Totally Rad Show, Weekend Confirmed, Always On. But now I'm here to talk to you about my next big thing. I'm very excited about this. All right, now you're Mr. Enthusiasm here, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I like to think so. I think you're pretty enthusiastic. I've been listening to your show. It's pretty awesome. Oh, thanks, man. I try my best, man. But you're the one who has to give me pointers since you have all the experience. <laughs> I mean, I think you just have to love what you do. And I think that'll come across if you're passionate about what you do. There's this guy called the Podcast Answer Man. He said in this social media age, people, they can feel your intent. I think that's the currency of the Internet. I mean, I honestly think that's why people go to the Internet rather than, you know, traditional media. They're looking for people that can speak directly to their interests and speak to their interests with enthusiasm and genuine knowledge base and genuine passion about it. I saw one of the questions on your Kickstarter page. They said, why aren't you with a network? Working on it. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. I want to have a, a home for the show that lasts over a long period. So I'm, I'm definitely hoping to hook up with some sort of network that will uh, house the show. And why Kickstarter? Honestly, I was reluctant at first. I had no idea if it was going to be a successful campaign. I, I really wasn't sure that the interest was there. I mean, I had been doing a show for almost six years with two other guys. And when we ended doing the show, I missed it. I wanted to continue doing something like it, but I wasn't sure that by myself, there'd be that outpouring of support. And a good buddy of mine, Brian Brushwood, who uh, also is an internet personality and does a lot of shows, yes. he called me up and he said, you've got to do this. You have to just reach out and, and make it a question, like ask the audience if it's something that they want. And the level of support has been absolutely overwhelming. I can't, I never in my wildest dreams expected what has happened. Okay, since you said that, my predictable question, what do you <laughs> have to say to your backers? I've run out of thesaurus words for thank you. At this point, I can't even possibly express the amount of gratitude and really the level of motivation and enthusiasm they've infused in me to make something worthy of all the attention and the level of support. I'm determined not to let them down. And I think that right there, that boost of motivation and excitement is uh, invaluable to me. And I 
not just the money and not just the number of backers. It's really the the messages that I've gotten, the emails, yes. the tweets. It's extraordinary, and I am eternally grateful. Could you give me a synopsis of your new show? It's going to be a show that covers all of the things that I love, movies and video games and comic books and TV shows and books and all kinds of you know what people refer to as geek culture stuff. That's you know I'm, I'm firmly in the geek camp. There's a very specific idea for the format of the show. It's not going to be exactly what the Totally Rad Show was, which is I'm hoping this will feel like the spiritual successor, but it is definitely going to be a different take on that same material. I think it's going to be really cool. And it's the goal is to create a show that people want to watch on their big screens. You know, little screens are good too. And I hope people digest it that way as well. But uh, it's going to be big screen entertainment, I hope. Wow. Jeff Kanata up to big things these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Here's a philosophical question. You talk about nerdy, all things geekdom. It seems that so many people are trying to carve out a niche that's like cool or totally cool for all things nerdy and geekdom. Why do you think that is? Well, one of the the big quotes that we had on my old show was uh, nerd is the new cool. And I think that has become the truth that when I was growing up, I got beat up for being into the stuff that I was into. And now, you know, the biggest movie in the world is uh, The Avengers and the biggest book in the world is Harry Potter. And these are nerdy things. And I think that ultimately what that comes down to is imagination. And right. I love living inside my imagination. I love exploring the imagination of other creative people. And I think a lot of people are into that as well. And I think that there's room in the creative sphere for having a lot of shows and a lot of types of media that explore that and express their love for it. And yeah, maybe it's a crowded marketplace, but I think it's um, a lively one. And, and certainly there's room for everybody. With the internet and all the possibilities of social media, everyone must be employed as far as television, music. Or, <laughs> I mean, I know it's not so, and it doesn't make sense. It's contradictory to the economy, but Another way of putting it is that there's no longer an excuse not to be doing what you love because if if you really want to do it, I mean, I think if you want to get into it because you want to make a quick buck or you want to be in, in the public eye, that's the wrong way to go about it. I, I think, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of thankless work for a long, long time yes. uh, for a lot of people. But if it's truly what you love, there, like no time in our history there is an avenue to get your voice out there and to find an audience. Uh oh, you're starting to sound like it's Star Trekian times. It's <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Boldly go. I'm so I'm saying boldly go, people. It's that level of of enthusiasm that you know trekkers have. I have. That's really who I'm speaking to is people that are obsessive about the things that they love. You know, that's the yeah. show I'm trying to create is a place where people can come and hang out and talk about all the best stuff on the net and in media and where they can, you know, we can have a great time criticizing and gushing about the things that we are passionate about. You're many shows deep and you're starting on your next great adventure. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of just starting out. So do you have any advice how I can keep the enthusiasm, how I can keep up the encouragement? It sounds cheesy perhaps, but follow your heart. And make the show that you want to make for you. I think it's really easy in the age of the internet to listen to your detractors and try to make something just to please people. And that almost never works. I think 
you have to really create the show that you would want to see. And if you make that, there's going to be a heck of a lot of people like you, and you're going to be shocked at how many people want to see the same types of things you want to see. I appreciate that a great deal. And I want everybody to know that I've just gotten the best advice from Jeff Kanata, <laughs> formerly of the Totally Rad Show, and off to a great big new adventure. Thanks for coming on The Crib. Thank you. I, I really dig your show, so I'm happy to be here. I'm Brooke. And I'm Brittany. We're, We're good grave. Who are we? We are an indie folk pop band from Florida. I play cello and ukulele. I sing and play guitar. And we really need your help. I just help. want to welcome Hopefully you to the show. Uh, hold up. I'm confused again. It's Brooke, right? Yes, Brooke. Brooke, your sister's missing. I don't know where she's at this time. It's always some boy or something like that. But I want to welcome <laughs> you to the show since she's missing. Thank you very much. The name of your EP is Better Half. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say anything there, but it's good <laughs> grace. We're each each other's better halves in terms of twins. <laughs> but you're talking about going on this tour in a camper, and it's going to be just the two of you? No, we're actually going on tour with another band that's twins. So it's going to be a twin tour, kind of like Twin Towers wow, Night Tour. super friends. They're identical twin boys. Hmm, that sounds like trouble. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> sounds like trouble to me. You know, it gives, you know, an edge, I think, to the tour. It gives an something edge. Something that's not just seeing two bands. You're seeing two bands with man, twins in them. It's not very common. If I were your parents, sounds like trouble to me. <laughs> Now, hold up. How old are you then? Uh, we're 24. The other band, how old are they? They're the same age. They might be 23 or 24. Now, this is not sounding good at all to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is not sounding good at all to me. This sounds like raucous to me. Trouble. Oh, no. <laughs> Causing shenanigans all up the East Coast. Hold up. Separate campers? We'll share the one camper, and then we're also bringing a tent. So we have a 20-person tent that um, if we need, like, you know, a little bit of time apart. (laughs) For when the arguments break out, in which they inevitably do on tour. And plus, I see in your video, I played it like 20 times. I'm like your biggest fan right now. And you you got all these dirty little kids in it and stuff. So that's what the tent is for. (laughs) (laughs) That music video was filmed in Vietnam. So those are all travelers and our friends that we met while living in Hanoi, which I think is just the absolute coolest thing that you see. Like, that music video has people from all over the world. You know, that dirt looked colored in the video, so... Um, looks like it was different colors. It's actually powder pigment to mix like large quantities of paint. Right. It's the pigment cut with flour because the pigment is so potent and very strong when you inhale it. It really clogs everything. So, and it's Vietnam. We didn't know how toxic everything was, you know. So we cut it with flour. <laughs> so it's it's about I'd say seventy percent flour. 30% pigment for paint. Wow, you guys take a lot of chances. You cut possibly industrial paint with flour because <laughs> you didn't know how toxic it, so terrible. it was. Uh, we asked. It's, you know, it's, we weren't completely <laughs> taking our chances, but 
you know, there's a language barrier there. Of, <laughs> he said, basically, don't eat it. But you know, we looked at the people using it, and they're just covered from head to toe in, in the color. So, yeah, they seem okay. And we gave everyone a warning beforehand, you know. And you've been able to find people afterwards. You know, I mean, everybody's still alive who was in the video. Yeah, everyone's okay. I think everyone had a rough next day. I was so congested. I, I blew red powder out of my nose for days. I think a few other people felt the same way. Tell me about your experience on Kickstarter. Fantastic, yet humbling. I was shocked at the people who I haven't spoken to in 15 years or so, even more than that, who donated. You know, someone I went to elementary school with and haven't spoken to and yet found their way through our Facebook and donated to our Kickstarter. That was such a great feeling. So that's the way I can put it, is our friends are, we're very, very, very fortunate. Now tell me about this grassroots tour that you're talking about taking with these other twins, these hooligans. A lot of tours tend to hit just a lot of venues. They just go, 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 go. Our tour is going to be three months. We hit a lot of cities, but we're taking our time. So with that, our goal is to make more friends because it's so awesome meeting new people and hearing other people's stories. Our goal is to throw parties, essentially shows, around our pop-up camper, have campfires, you know, cook over the open flame. And also, a lot of farms have their own farmer's markets, which we love playing. So we want to try and target those as well. It seems like everything else seems to work out for you guys. We have really good luck. We're very fortunate. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. I mean, luck helps. (laughs) Luck helps. It's stressful. Being a musician isn't easy. Do you guys really want to be professional musicians, or is this another one of the things where you run off with boys for a couple of years and, you know, go all <laughs> around the world and all that, and then you come back to your I parents? think we already did that, so we're we're ready to buckle down, and we look at Good Grace as a business. You know, we take it very seriously, and we work endlessly on it. I think we have about three days off this month. Right. And those three days are just spent networking, you know, booking our tour is a huge undertaking. So it's fun work. I love it. That's why we do it, is we absolutely love it. Okay. But it is a lot of work. I really like your um, song, Hold Me Fast. Of course, that's a hit. You know, if it were up to me, that'd be number one in the country sooner or later. I love the line, bullets don't dance, they make holes. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote Thank that, you. huh? Of course I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't questioning authorship. I was, I was just saying, you know, I was trying to give you a compliment. Like, in, no, like I appreciate in, I really, no, I really appreciate Oh, that. that's what your problem is. You have you. a problem with compliments. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a hard time taking compliments. Now, what is the name of the band that you guys are touring with? What do they call? They're called The Doers. The Doers. We met at a all-twin show in Orlando <laughs> with another twin band called Letner. <laughs> we met the Doers and just like clicked, and they play somewhat similar music to ours. They're awesome entertainers, so wow. um, we're really excited to go on tour with them. This is some sort of underground twin network or something like that. 
Right? Calling all twins. Like, check out our tour. <laughs> you know? I've never heard of such. <laughs> There's a twins festival in Twinsburg, Ohio, oh, which we're going pretty far out of our way right. to hit. It's called Twins Days. And they won't get back to us. We've sent them so many emails. We've called. I've posted on their Facebook. I've sent other art. Like, there was a magician who played there one year. I sent right. him an email trying to get a contact. And we're doing a twin tour, and they will not let us play it. <laughs> At this twins, the largest twins meeting in the world is in Twinsburg, Ohio, during our tour. The best part is it, it lands on our birthday. So the <laughs> twins, twins festival, the twins days, is on our birthday, the largest meeting of twins. We're going on a twin tour with another band, and we still can't seem to be able to play for this thing. This so really bothers you, if there's anyone you, out there you? who has a contact to the twins days festival, Please let us know. We would love to play it there. Otherwise, we're breaking in and busking. <laughs> When's the birthday, which is also the Twins Fair in Twinsburg? August 4th is our birthday. You've been snubbed by your own kind, and you represent the Twins to the fullest. <laughs> I, know, I know, and we love being twins. Like, we absolutely, it's such a huge part of Brittany and I, and it hurts to <laughs> you know, have these people... We're so excited to go there, and we thought we would have no problem booking it. I've been talking to Brooke from Good Grave, Wonder Twins Power. They had a very successful <laughs> Kickstarter. They're going on tour with a whole twin nation. They're unstoppable. So <laughs> I just really appreciate you taking the time to come out on the show. Good luck on your album, and um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for um, you know talking to us about it and spreading the, the word of good grace and twin powers and all that jazz. And tell your sister I said hello. I will, of course. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. Hi, everyone. My name's Michael Fox, and I am the guy behind a podcast and a website called The Little Metal Dog Show, uh, which is all about board games, card games, the stuff that we all love to play. So I'm asking you, Michael, how can I help you? Well, let's let's talk games. Let's talk random things. Okay. Okay, this isn't blowing my own trumpet, but, you know, I'm vaguely known in the board games world. That's a big endorsement. I've been doing my own little games podcast for like three years, and... I write for a few different people and that's always good. But taking that jump and trying to actually produce a game and then getting your own little company off the ground, right? that's terrifying. Hey, that's our <laughs> first question. Why don't you tell me what that's like? It's a challenge. I mean, you can walk down any store. I mean, over in the States, obviously, you've got Target. And over here, we have similar big box stores where you'll walk down the aisles and you'll see copies of monopoly and clue and twister and all manner of things right they're okay they're great games when we played them when we were kids but a few years ago i got into shall we say more hardcore games like the stuff that most people would recognize as things like settlers of Catan and carcassonne ticket to ride those are the most famous names from the world of games that i like to play right i wanted to jump in i wanted to see could i create my own games and would people be interested in them and Luckily enough, last year I uh, had my first one published and then I thought, well, why don't I try and set up my own company and do it myself? And man, I didn't realize the amount of work that goes in <laughs> after, you, after you've actually developed the game. Oh right. man, it gets crazy. 
Now, are you talking about the Kickstarter work involved or just the whole publishing biz and distribution, marketing, etc.? Everything. If, if you're a one man or in our case, a one man and one woman, because my wife, Steph, is responsible for the art for our games. Right. If you're a little company, everything falls on your shoulders. The responsibility is entirely yours. So you have to do everything from writing that Kickstarter page, getting people interested, and at the same time, you are then also getting in touch with people, making phone calls, dropping emails, trying to get things promoted, trying to get people noticing the game, trying to build up a head of steam before the campaign even launches. And then right. after that, you've got to then consider about printing and distribution and getting the games to people's tables. And it's an awful lot of work, but I'm having a blast doing it. Oh, cool. So you're going to stick with this whole game publisher biz. Oh, yeah, I can't do anything else. I was attracted to your game because I saw the artwork and I was like, man, this is totally cool artwork. So, you know, marketing is, I keep saying, 50% of the battle. So I was mm -hmm. already sold. So that's why I contacted you. Oh, my, well, thank you very much. My wife will be delighted. She knows that she's a good artist. She right. knows that she's got skills. But if you try and tell her the stuff that she's doing is amazing, she will go red as a beetroot and then not talk to you for 10 minutes. <laughs> Well, that's why I clicked on the page because of the artwork. So you can tell her DJ Grandpa approved. <laughs> <laughs> see, we'll, see, we'll stick it up there. Nice big banner at the top of the page. Yeah, I, I put a stamp. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's new. You know, I'm always marketing stuff. You know, my latest thing is DJ Grandpa approved and backed, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that does seem to be the thing that a lot of people have jumped in on first. You know, they've noticed that the art style is very striking it's very family friendly now we should get down to business <laughs> you need to tell me about your game it's based on a classic party game some people know it as werewolf some people know it as mafia um, it was originally developed by a russian teacher called dmitry davidov uh, way back in the 80s 1986 he good name it. good name proper russian name yeah and the idea is it is a game of limited information so everybody receives a card which has a role that they will play for that game. But it's a secret role. You're not allowed to tell anybody what you are. And in the case of something like Mafia or Werewolf, obviously those things are a little bit, shall we say, on the darker side. <laughs> and we figured it would be a nice idea if we could, shall we say, remix the game a little bit. So we made it a bit more family-friendly. We, we turned it into foxes invading a hen house. Uh, so the game is now called Fox and Chicken. Yeah. Uh, we've added a whole bunch of new roles in there. But the idea is the foxes have invaded this hen house. They're looking for dinner. And the games are split into rounds of day phases and night phases. So every night, the foxes, who do know who the other foxes are, will open their eyes and secretly choose one of the chickens to eat. <laughs> The yeah. following morning, the sun comes up, everybody opens their eyes, and the storyteller, the person who's running the game, will say, everybody's awake apart from <laughs> this chicken over here. <laughs> Daytime, then, is a free-for-all. Right. Because what must then happen is the entire group must then try and discern who the foxes are. And there must be a majority vote to get rid of one of the foxes, to run them out of the hen house. Right. Of course, the foxes are sitting there knowing exactly who their fellow foxes are. Yes. But are lying through their teeth in a bid to try and survive and eat more chickens and try and get the numbers down and down and down. <laughs> down. <laughs> so it's a very 
simple game. There's very few rules in it, right. but it can get so het up and so crazy at the end of it because right. people go, I knew you were a fox. I knew you were a fox. <laughs> what if you're drinking? I mean, it must get just insane as though. <laughs> I must admit there have been a few games where there, where there is a little bit of alcohol involved and it can get very, very frenetic. That's one way of saying it. Yeah. But what you can also do then is introduce further roles, which we've done. We've introduced extra characters who might have special abilities and powers. <laughs> Not superpowers. That's the last thing you should do in a chicken in fox. Well, they, well, what we have, we have chickens who are dressed in fox suits as they're trying to work out who, <laughs> who the bad guys are. So they have special right. abilities. How many players can play this game at once? If you're feeling adventurous, you can play it with... Once we have all the other cards and everything finally released, you will be able to play it with up to 46 people. <laughs> I would suggest oh, this is a free-for-all. Oh, oh, it gets crazy. I would suggest, you know, if you're just kicking off playing, maybe stick with between 7 and 10. Okay. But if you're feeling like you can handle it, I would just throw it all in there and see what happens. What would you like to say to your backers? This is going to sound very cheesy. But I'd like to say thank you, simply because without them, this wouldn't be happening. I wouldn't have this opportunity to try and start making a little something for myself. I know it's a product, and I know at the end of the day it's something that people are, are buying to have something sitting on their table or to be played with. But for me, it's an awful lot more than just a bunch of cards and a load of pictures and words. It's the opportunity to actually try and do something a bit different that's not sitting in an office on a nine to five. And it's incredibly valuable. Michael Fox, I want to say that I wish you the best, that I wish your campaign, your very talented wife, artist the best with the fox and the chicken on Kickstarter. And everybody, you should go check out the artwork. It's beautiful. I just laugh when I look at the picture. And Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, my name is Josh Zimmerman. I'm a middle school science teacher out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I also run a small hobbyist website called Brown Dog Gadgets, where I sell parts, kits, and supplies that I develop for both my classroom and for personal use. Over okay, Josh. Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib. Oh, well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Now, Josh, could you tell me about this gadgety gadget of yours, the solar cell? Sure. Well, I've been making these uh, USB chargers that are made into Altoid tins or out of Altoid tins for the past two years. It's been my number one seller off my website, one of the first projects I kind of put together on my own. And my customers kept coming back to me all the time saying, we want more power. Hey, I need to do this or that over a long camping trip. And, like, and being somebody who used to go camping quite frequently as a Boy Scout, I thought back to myself, like, okay, if I was doing that now, what kind of power would I need for a weekend just one of these long trips? And especially since quite a few of my customers are coming back and telling me that they want to use GPS nonstop. Cyclists just nonstop GPS. And GPS just sucks power out of your phone. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what can I do to make things better. And I have to see on the market, there's a lot of these big commercial... USB chargers, big solar things, and they're just insanely expensive. So I thought, I can make a folding solar cell. I have tons of solar stuff around. So I kept messing around. I came up with just a very simple design and talked to one of my suppliers, and uh, they helped me put something together. 
you're a middle school teacher. Now, how many students do you have, and what do they think about what you're doing? I have um, about 75 students, three grades, six, seven, and eight. Some of the projects I have on my website, I tested out with my kids at a science club last year, and we do different projects and activities. And I got a lot of kids because kids are just are great. If something thinks or they don't like it, they'll let you know. They'll straight up tell you, this is a horrible project or these directions don't make sense. And plus, they also screw up a lot. And when they screw up, I can see, <laughs> oh, if they're making this mistake, how should I be able to fix that? How should I improve that for my customers or the next time I do this project in the classroom? And they got to make cool stuff, take it home, and I got to watch people do my projects right in front of me. Now, you're not breaking any child labor laws or anything like that, you know? <laughs> No, 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 no. I am donating my kits to my classroom <laughs> for use. It's for all educational. And it's all low-voltage. Oh, okay. No, I, no accidents. You know, electrocution oh, no, no, no. or anything, you know, something like that or something. I got you. Okay. I only had a couple of kids try out soldering under very close supervision. <laughs> and when I was back in middle school, which wasn't that long ago, which was only 15 years ago. Right. I had shop class and we had soldering irons, we had power tools. Yeah, they got crazy stuff in shop classes back in the day. Yeah. And it was like 15 years ago. They had a full-on shop class in my middle school. I was very impressed. But here was a 7th and 8th grader doing that stuff. And my middle school doesn't have any of that. And I think kids really miss out on being able to make things. It's a different look on their face than just trying to learn something. My producer, Vaughn, she wants to know, is this product, would it be affordable and have applications in resource poor or third world countries? In many parts of the world, people have cell phones, but they don't have access to reliable electric grids. And there's quite a few small, like individual people-based businesses, micro-businesses even, that rely totally on just charging up other people's cell phones for a small amount of money. And these folding cells are cheap enough and small enough that you can take a bunch of them anywhere, give them to people, and suddenly you have USB power for phones, for basic lighting. And it's just amazing how much of a difference you can make with a small light in someone's life when they have no reliable source of lighting. Can they find these sort of solutions at your website? Yeah. Well, I work with a lot of individuals on small projects as well. I post a lot of uh, stuff on Instructables.com, a do-it-yourself website. Hey, I know that site. Go ahead. Talk about it. I love Instructables. That's how I got my start doing my business with some my designs I threw up there, and people liked them. So I said, hey, maybe I can sell these things. So if you're on Instructables.com, that means you're part of the DIY community, right? Oh, yes, I am. All my designs for all my kits are out there on my website and Instructables for free. I just offer the parts on my site and kits to put them together. I always tell people, you can buy the parts elsewhere if you want, but I have them on my site as well if you need them. What's your website? BrownDogGadgets.com. I had an interview a couple months ago with someone who told me about how the Instructables community was just marvelous. Like, you put your ideas out there, and they'll tell you, thumbs up, thumbs down, fix this, fix that. You know, oh, you need research on such and such? Oh, I've done that for 10 years. You know, check this information out. So I heard they were like an incredible community. Between the structural being a great online resource and many decent-sized cities having um, local maker spaces, right. you can find groups of people locally or online that can just be very supportive of your small-time projects. Especially since any idea you have, somebody probably has had a very similar idea or attempted right. something similar. So it's really great to uh, look online, get some ideas, and try to take it in your own direction. Now, Josh, I'm going to say that your project, man, your DJ grandpa backed and approved. <laughs> That's like the gold seal, man. Both of them. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So thank you very much for uh, the interview. It was very nice to get that request from you. 
Hi, I'm Ed Anunziata, game producer and designer. I'm the creator of Echo the Dolphin, the classic underwater adventure game from Sega. Could you tell me about this new game? It's about the ocean. So you start out as a dolphin, much like Echo the Dolphin, and you can swim around freely, and you start to interact with more life forms. And the thing about this game is that like, sort of the story of the game is it takes place a million years in the future. And that's really convenient for game designers because we can make up a lot of different creatures. Why did you wipe out all the humans? When I worked on the first game, and, you know, we did some focus tests, and there were lots of inputs from different people right. in the company, like marketing people. And the ideas that would constantly come up was like, you know, why don't you have whalers and, you know, fishing nets and oil slicks and scuba divers with spear guns as enemies. But there's like a philosophical itch that I get when those kind of suggestions come up. It's sort of like, hey, Ed, you know, why don't you make this not about the dolphins, not about sea life, but about us somehow. Like, <laughs> us into it. You know, because ultimately it's always about us. And it annoys me because I don't mean to wipe out humanity. I mean, I didn't really want to do that. And, you know... Who knows? Maybe they're not really, or maybe there's a way they could come back. No, don't back down on it. But I'm not going to whip out on this. I'm not going to whip out on this. And I just want this to be about a bigger... And I know it's just a video game, so I'm like talking like this, this is like some epic. But I think when you're immersed in a game and you're immersed in a story, you put, you know, literally a hundred hours into it, it has the potential to be a really big, impactful story that could inspire you and get you to look at the world in a different way. Okay. One other thing about that, there's a lot that happens in the game that we had something to do with. Like, for example, right now, if you were a sea mammal, you'd have a hard time communicating with another sea mammal if they're too far away, because we as a species are constantly making noise in the ocean. We have motorboats, and we have sonar, and we have this loud white noise. It's sort of like being at a crowded stadium. You You're can't right really talk that. to somebody if they're 20 feet away because you can't hear each other because there's so much noise. But if we go away and the ocean becomes silent instantly, suddenly all these sea mammals could talk to each other globally. But we stop them. You know that old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Yeah. So we pollute the ocean with noise, and we pollute the ocean with chemicals and garbage, and we challenge the environment. We pump CO2 into the environment, and guess what? We don't kill the Earth. We are the force that actually makes it stronger, and that, in a weird way, the damage we're doing is stimulating it to take the next step. It's funny, because in a way, you're caught in between both worlds of art and commerce. And on one side, you almost sound like an environmentalist. I mean, are you? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I am an environmentalist. I don't really know what that means other than I know what I care about personally. You just alluded to that we have an inclination to put ourselves in the middle of everything. And when you're in the process of creation and you're the leader of a team... You always have people coming to you and having side conversations, and their side conversations always pretty much involve what they want from you. Yeah. It seems as though you've just told me that different people come and say, well, maybe the people should do this, or maybe people could be involved in this. And you made a stance that, no, people 
aren't, for the most part, going to be involved. The dolphins are going to, you know, the sea animals are going to, and, and things of that nature. So I'm thinking maybe maybe you're in some sort of environmentalist in a way. I'm, I'm not trying to take away from your your mound of business, you know, statistical business mm-hmm. evidence that you've, you've generated profits for companies, for huge companies. But I'm just saying, I just see a pattern. That's all. I just wanted to ask the question. The pattern that I hope for and the thing that I get out of it is stimulating new thinking or inspiring a new way of thinking for anybody to say, you know, oh, I became a science fiction author because of Echo the Dolphin, or, you know, I'm into marine biology because of Echo the Dolphin. Anytime I hear something like that, that's the biggest reward. And I guess, you know, I easily could sort of link this ocean-based game to contemporary kind of uh, ocean-based charities and say, you know, 10% of all profits will go to this. But I don't even want to do that because I'd much rather it just be the kind of thing where everybody that experiences it just thinks about the ocean and thinks about the earth in a different way. Right. And there's two messages to it. One, we have a huge, huge impact, much bigger than anybody really thinks. And two, we don't really have an impact at all because a million years is going to go by and whatever input we had into the environment and the climate, it's just going to work itself out and the earth isn't even going to know we were here. So sometimes it's healthy to have a little humility. You know, we're not the center of the universe. Well, why Kickstarter instead of Sega? I've made a lot of games with publishers. I've done really well, but every single one of them, especially the original ones, it's really hard to sell the idea and to get the funding. And frankly, the Big Blue, I can't imagine, you know, really getting the kind of backing from anyone other than everybody because, you know, if you believe in it, you know, maybe you'll kick in 20 bucks. But to get a businessman to say, oh, here's half a million dollars, go build it, we'll hope for the best, it's just a lot harder. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the long tail of it. Like, after the game is done, I want to be dead for 100 years and that game still be running. I want you to keep doing those weird projects, see? I might yeah, question exactly. you on being a businessman and art and commerce and all of that, but I really like your, uh, hmm, I guess your maverick type of spirit. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was great. Welcome back to the show. I'm speaking with Dan Franklin, one of the musicians, one of the co-creators of Mind of Mirrors. It's a multimedia Kickstarter project involving music and a graphic novel. I'd like to welcome Dan to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. Could you tell me what this project, this concept album, is all about? Well, my band, which is called Dan and Leland, we were working on our fourth album and writing for that. And we just started realizing that um, when we put these songs in a particular order, that we were writing something much bigger. And over the course of five years, we uh, sort of fleshed that out into a 100-page graphic novel. Wow. Sort of along the lines of a Vertigo novel where... You know, it's uh, very introspective, very dark. Has a lot to do with, you know, analyzing yourself and stuff like that. So, how did the whole graphic novel part 
come into play. We had a lot of directions that we could take, and we were thinking of maybe doing a film. We were thinking of, you know, maybe just doing a, a straight-up novel. But we're both kind of comic book nerds, and we love it so much that we decided right. that that was going to be the best angle. And then we just started outlining it and writing it, and then later we uh, ran into Tom. Well, he kind of ran into me. He, he saw me playing a, another gig, and we connected after the gig and started talking about it. Why Kickstarter? Originally, our plan was to get the script together, you know, get a treatment together in the album, and, you know, try to take it to Vertigo or Dark Horse or any of these comic book companies, you know, and pitch it and try to get them attached and have them pair us with an author. Then we were just like, well, you know, why do that when we could just, uh, you know, crowdsource the money to make the thing and then we'll own it and we don't have to pay any major publisher a big chunk of the profits. Well, that's true. I mean, in this whole digital age, this sort of new economy, you can keep all the money. I understand. Yeah. You can't go back, but you can't move on till you let go, but you keep holding on. Holding on. How would you describe the graphic novel? Is it slightly different than your album? You know, the album sort of exists to tell the same story as the book in a slightly different way. Think of it as a soundtrack. You know, it's sort of eclectic pop rock with a bunch of outlaw country kind of instruments going along with it to tell the story. Right. Which is sort of set in 1988, Devil's Lake, North Dakota, kind of a, you know, redneck town kind of idea. Well, basically, this kind of rebel kid that has no direction in life ends up hooking up with his high school friend, this girl that he's grown up with. They end up falling in love, and then Mr. Green, who is this sort of trickster god, sort of seduces him away from that, tells him that it, you know, that his, his life is meaningless and he needs to go out and make a name for himself. And Green is sort of the classic trickster from any kind of fable. He's Loki or, you know, Coyote or Satan or whoever you want to consider him. And he gets him to drink from this golden flask, which sort of, takes his mind and, and breaks it in two, and half of his mind goes into the mirror behind the bar. And he's sort of living in two worlds at the same time. And the mirror world, throughout the course of the book, is slowly taking over. Right. Really, the crux of the story is that the entire time, Jack is trying to look to all these external factors to define him. You know, first he tries sex, he tries drugs, he tries rock and roll, he tries all these things, but he never really looks inside to just sort of be the person he is. And that's a pretty in-depth story, and it's called Mind of Mirrors, right? Yes. That's pretty gripping. I was on the edge of my microphone the whole time. <laughs> Dan Franklin, I wish you the best with your Kickstarter. I want you to tell Leland and Tom I said hello, and I wish them the best, and thanks for coming on the show. I'll do it. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to thank all our guests this week, and a special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams for contributing the theme song to DJ Grandpa's Crip. I'd also like to thank Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. 
please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rufus. 